We are in the book of Joel tonight. Joel chapter 2 is where we are this evening as we're going through the minor prophets uh, together. The book of Joel and the second uh, chapter. And we're going to read verse 1 uh, down to verse 27. And then we'll come back and backtrack and break it apart and see if we can get a handle on this chapter tonight. Joel chapter 2 and verse 1. The prophet writes, Blow ye the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain, that all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord cometh, for it is nigh at hand. A day of darkness and of gloominess, a day of clouds and of thick darkness, as the morning spread upon the mountains. A great people and a strong, there hath not been ever the like. Neither shall there be any more after it, even to the years of many generations. A fire devoureth before them, and behind them a flame burneth. The land is as the garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. Yea, and nothing shall escape them. The appearance of them is as the appearance of horses, and as horsemen shall they run. Like the noise of chariots on the tops of mountains shall they leap. Like the noise of a flame of fire that devoureth the stubble as a strong people set in battle array. Before their face the people shall be much pained. All faces shall gather blackness. They shall run like mighty men. They shall climb the wall like men of war. And they shall march every one on his ways and they shall not break their ranks. Neither shall one thrust another. They shall walk every one on his path, and when they fall upon the sword, they shall not be wounded. They shall run to and fro in the city. They shall run upon the wall. They shall climb up upon the houses. They shall enter in at the windows like a thief. The earth shall quake before them. The heavens shall tremble. The sun and the moon shall be dark, and the stars shall withdraw their shining. And the Lord shall utter his voice before his army, for his camp is very great. For he is strong that executeth his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible, and who can abide it? Therefore also now saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning. And rend your heart, and not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. Who knoweth if he will return and repent and leave a blessing behind him, even a meat offering and a drink offering unto the Lord your God? Blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly. Gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders together, uh, and gather the children and those that suck the breasts. Let the bridegroom go forth of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep between the porch and the altar. And let them say, Spare thy people, O Lord, and give not thine heritage to reproach, that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore should they say among the people, Where is their God? Then will the Lord be jealous for his land and pity his people. Yea, the Lord will answer and say unto his people, Behold, I will send you corn and wine and oil, And you shall be satisfied therewith, and I will no more make you a reproach among the heathen. But I will remove far off from you the northern army, and will drive him into a land barren and desolate, with his face toward the east sea, and his hinder part toward the utmost sea, 
and his stink shall come up, and his ill savour shall come up, because he hath done great things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord will do great things. Be not afraid, ye beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness do spring, for the tree beareth her fruit, the fig tree and the vine do yield their strength. Be glad then, ye children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. For he hath given you the former rain moderately, and he will cause to come down for you in the rain, the former rain, and the latter rain in the first month. The floods shall be full of wheat, and sorry, the floors shall be full of wheat, and the fats shall overflow with wine and oil. And I will restore to you the years that the locust hath eaten, the canker worm and the caterpillar and the palmer worm, my great army which I sent among you. And you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God that hath dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never be ashamed. And you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. And that I am the Lord your God. And none else. And my people shall never be ashamed. And we trust the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his precious and holy word. Well, last Wednesday evening, uh, we saw how that Joel wrote this prophecy in the wake of recent events that had had affected the land of Judah. A massive locust swarm, uh, unparalleled in living history, had visited the land and nothing but desolation had been left in its wake. His description portrayed the fruit trees of Judah and Israel as being stripped bare. Even the bark was eaten and the crops were ruined. Famine was around the corner. The drunkards were, uh, were told to howl uh, because there would be no more wine as a consequence of the loss of the grapevine. And uh, the priests were told to mourn because there would be nothing to sacrifice. Once famine struck, they couldn't have animals that were without blemish. And uh, they therefore had to cease the offerings in the temple. And so that which was central to Jewish worship had to come to an abrupt halt. So Joel, taking stock of these events, likens their impact to the coming day of the Lord. He moves from an event in his lifetime to an event beyond his lifetime that will actually happen about 200 years down the line from where he lives. Now, remember that one phrase that he keeps coming back to again and again, the day of the Lord. And that phrase relates to God's intervention in the affairs of men, particularly with a view to judgment. So the locust plague, Joel believes, is a judgment of God, an act of God. We use that phrase today, don't we, for unnatural events in uh, insurance circles. There may be a clause in your insurance policy that lets the insurance company off the hook if you are struck by an act of God, something that they couldn't possibly factor in uh, to their risk assessment when they were insuring your home or insuring your car or whatever it is they were insuring. So they could allow for the possibility of a theft or an accidental fire, but if, say, there was an earthquake in in, uh, Northern Ireland, that would be something totally unexpected to them. And they might say, well, that was an act of God. And they would absolve themselves of paying out perhaps in such an event or if there was some other similarly strange uh, event. So the locust plague is viewed as an act of God. And uh, the desolation of the land by such a massive swarm of locusts was unpredictable. It was unparalleled 
and the living memory of those who experienced it, but was also a harbinger of things to come. It pointed to another day of the Lord, one that was imminent, and yet a, a second that was distant. So, you know, the book of Joel is easily divided into three parts. You have the recent event of which uh, Joel spoke. Then you have the imminent event, uh, which is the Assyrian invasion into the land. And we're going to talk about that this evening. And then you had a distant event. And effectively, uh, those the three points in the outline fall more or less within the three chapters of the book. Now, again, I remember this term, the day of the Lord. And I've given you a little handout tonight. If you didn't get it in the way in, there's likely going to be one out on the foyer and the table. Uh, but I hope, you've, I hope it'll be a help to you. Uh, and it will help you clarify what we're talking about. We talk about the day of the Lord. Let's just do a little review of that. We did look at it last week, the difference in the scriptural days. Uh, we're living right now in this present age. It's been 2,000 years or so since the uh, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, since his uh, coming into the world. And so we're in the church age, but this is referred to in Scripture as the day of man. And Paul makes reference to that in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 3. So it's the day of man insofar as we are in a place and time where God is held in man's judgment. Man is judging God. And, uh, you know, there's, they say, you know, people say it all the time, well, there is no God, or how could God allow this to happen, or why wouldn't, surely a God of love wouldn't do this. And so they're always casting some kind of judgment upon uh, God. But someday, man's day will give way to the Lord's day and to the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is initiated by the day of Christ. So what you have is the rapture. And then you, that's followed by the Great Tribulation. And that period of seven years is the day of Christ. Probably most specifically is the rapture itself the day of Christ. But nevertheless, we're going to count those seven years as the day of Christ. And those are, that day is referred to in the book of Philippians. In various texts, Philippians chapter 1 and verse 10, uh, for example, uh, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 16, uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 2, so Philippians 2, 16 says, holding forth the word of life that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain. And Paul in 2 Timothy 2 Thessalonians 2 uh, speaks about the day of Christ being at hand. And he's speaking specifically about the rapture of the church. So the day of the Lord is initiated by the day of Christ. And you have these seven years of tribulation or great tribulation upon the earth. At the end of those seven years, the Lord Jesus returns to earth in his second coming. He comes to the Mount of Olives and uh, that begins uh, the millennial kingdom. And you have the thousand year reign of Christ as promised in Revelation chapter 20 and elsewhere. And that's the day of the Lord. So the day of the Lord entails the day of Christ uh, and takes in then the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hence, Joel speaks about it as a day of gloominess, as a day of darkness, because that's how it begins. The tribulation period is a time of gloominess and darkness and foreboding. But the dawn, uh, the darkness gives way to the dawn, to the second coming of the Lord, and to the brightness and the glory uh, of the millennial day. And so you have the day of the Lord and the last day of Scripture that is referenced 
is eternity, and that is called the day of God. So those are the days in Scripture that you not ought to understand, understand, get a hold of. Uh, I've given you that little uh, handout. You know, you can do what you will with it. You can tuck it in your Bible. You can light your fire with it tomorrow night, whatever you're going to do. But I hope you'll take the time to look at it, refresh your minds concerning it, and uh, hopefully it'll be of help to you as a point of reference. So, sometimes the day of the Lord is referred to as that day. It's referred to as the day of wrath. It's referred to as the day of vengeance, and uh, you know, and and so on. But twice in this chapter, as as we begin to approach this idea of the day of the Lord, you'll find that twice in this chapter, uh, a command is given to blow a trumpet for the blowing of the trumpet. And, uh, you know, the herald in ancient Israel uh, blew the trumpet for one of two reasons. He would either blow the trumpet uh, as, a, as a sound of alarm because there was an, uh, an army approaching or there was some threat to the city. So he would alarm people by the blowing of the shofar, the, the trumpet. Uh, or indeed, there would be the blowing of the trumpet as a sound for an assembly to gather all the people uh, together uh, at the temple for some religious end. So you see in verse 1, uh, blow you the trumpet in Zion, a sound of alarm. And verse 15, blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly. So both purposes for blowing the trumpet are seen in this particular chapter. So chapter 1 then, uh, or chapter 2, sorry, begins with a call of alarm. Okay, a call of alarm. Let's, uh, let's look at these verses, verses 1 uh, to 14. So it says, Blow ye the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain, that all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord cometh. It is nigh or near at hand. A day of darkness and of gloominess, a day of clouds and of thick darkness, is the morning spread upon the mountains. A great people and a strong, there hath not been ever the like, neither shall there be any more after it, even to the years of many generations. A fire devoureth before them, and behind them a flame burneth. The land is as the garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness, yea, and nothing shall escape them. The appearance of them is as the appearance of horses, and as horsemen so shall they run. Like the noise of chariots on the top of mountains shall they leap, like the noise of a flame of fire that devoureth the stubble, as a strong people set in battle array. Before their face the people shall be much pained, all faces shall gather blackness. They shall run like mighty men, they shall climb the wall like men of war, they shall march every one on his ways, they shall not break their ranks. Neither shall one thrust another, they shall walk every one on his path, and when they fall upon the sword, they shall not be wounded. They shall run to and fro in the city. They shall run upon the wall. They shall climb up upon the houses. They shall enter in at the, at the windows like a thief. The earth shall quake before them. The heavens shall tremble. The sun, the moon shall be dark. And the stars shall withdraw their shining. And the Lord shall utter his voice before his army. For his camp is very great. For he is strong that executeth his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. And who can abide it? Therefore also now saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, 
and repenteth him of the evil. Who knoweth if he will return and repent and leave a blessing behind him, even a meat and a drink offering unto the Lord your God. So we'll leave it there for the moment. We'll start in verse 15 in our next thought. But, but with respect to this first trumpet, Joel is building upon the picture of the locust uh, plague. And he envisages another army coming, not a, uh, an army of insects, but an army of people, a human uh, army, who will bring an even greater measure of desolation to the land than the locust invasion that they had just suffered. Now, he's referring to this event as the day of the Lord. He says, for the day of the Lord cometh, it is nigh at hand. And in that sense, it is a day in which God intervenes in the affairs of the nation of Israel and Judah uh, to judge the land. Now, this judgment will come by means of the Assyrian army. Notice in verse 20, he speaks about the northern army. But I will remove far off from you the northern uh, army. And, uh, you know, God is referring to, you know, both locusts in one sense, but also to this Assyrian army. And uh, the locust, of course, is likened in Scripture to an army. If you look in the book of Proverbs, chapter uh, 30 for a moment, Proverbs chapter 30. Verse 27. It says the locusts have no king, yet they forth they go yet sorry yet go they forth all of them by bands or by rank. So you can't break a, a locust a, a, a locust plague's ranks. You know they're marching forward. They're they're cy- they're cyclical in their movement, as I said last week. Uh, you know the the ones at the back are are flying to the front and then uh, eating the food that's ahead of them, and then those who are at the back that are left with nothing fly to the front, and they're on this constant march. And even as we saw in the video last week, when people were out beating the ground and waving the air and doing whatever they were trying to do to stop them, they were unstoppable. They were like this mighty army that was uh, on the advance. And so that's a, that's a picture. Look in Psalm 105. Psalm 105. Look at verse 33. He smote the vines also in their fig trees and break the trees of their coasts. He spake and the locusts came and the caterpillars and that without number. And we've seen already that there can be literally billions of these insects uh, as they descend upon a particular uh, land. So in the one hand, God is speaking about an army of locusts. On the other hand, he's viewing the Assyrian army in much the same way as this, uh, as this army that's going to overrun the nation. You know, this was the difficulty the American army had when they were fighting in Vietnam, is that the Vietnamese just kept coming at them. Uh, you know, the Americans had the better equipment. The Americans, you know, should have won that war on paper. Uh, but every time they thought the battle was won, another wave of Vietnamese would come at them. And basically their army was constantly on the back foot and being overwhelmed by these great numbers. Now, if that's true in modern warfare, think even how much more true that is in ancient warfare where armies just faced each other off uh, upon a battlefield. And so the Assyrians were really a very difficult army to deal with. Uh, But this uh, far-reaching prophecy now goes beyond even the Assyrian invasion of the land 
into the very last days to the battle of Armageddon and to an even greater period of suffering for the Jewish people. So like a cloud of locusts, this day of Assyrian invasion is going to come as a day of gloominess, as a day of darkness, of thick darkness. Sephaniah describes it in very similar terms. When we get to Sephaniah and look at his prophecy, he uses very similar language. And uh, notice in verse 3 again that cyclical movement that I referred to, a fire devoureth before them, and behind them a flame burneth. Uh, the land is as the garden of Eden before them. You know, it's, it's verdant, it's, uh, it's, it's green and pleasant. And behind them, what? A desolate wilderness. Yea, and nothing shall escape them. So these locusts, as we saw last week, leave utter desolation in their, in their wake. And this is descriptive also of the Assyrian army. Because it was an army that exercised a scorched earth policy. After the Assyrian army would come into your land, there was nothing left. They destroyed everything in their sight. They left you on your knees. And, uh, you know, they would just, their, their presence in the land would meet certain ruination. Um, listen to what, or let's read what the historian uh, Simon Eglin said concerning the Egyptian empire and the Egyptian army. Uh, he said this, that the, Egypt, the Assyrian empire was an aggressive murderously vindictive regime supported by a magnificent and successful war machine. As with the German army of World War II, the Assyrian army was the most technologically and doctrinally advanced of its day and was a model for others for generations afterwards. The Assyrians were the first to make extensive use of iron weaponry. And not only were iron weapons superior to bronze, but could be mass-produced allowing the equipping of very large armies indeed. So the Assyrians basically uh, set the model. They set the standard for subsequent uh, imperial forces. You know, I was reading uh, or listening to a documentary one day about the Roman army and uh, how it was that Queen Boudicca, uh, couldn't, her army couldn't defeat the Romans. They had, them, they had the Roman army backed into a corner and they came at them with a great number of uh, of English soldiers uh, desiring to rid this army out of their land. But the Romans actually won the battle. And the reason the Romans won the battle was because of their methodology, not because they had more men, but in this instance because of that cyclical movement. So what would happen in the Roman army is this. You would, they would stand in rank and they would fight uh, the English soldiers. Uh, but the English soldiers would battle and battle and battle and battle and battle. But the Romans would then move to one side and another rank would come in and the rank that was at the front of the battle went to the back and they had time to rest and so the English were constantly fighting fresh troops and basically they were worn down by the attrition of the Roman army and by their tactics and these were tactics that went back to Assyrian times. The Assyrian army was highly organized. It was ruthless. It was lethal. When it came into the land, it was bad news for anybody who was on the receiving end of their brutality and their warfare. Notice verse 4. It says, The appearance of them is as the appearance of horses, and as horsemen, so shall they run. Now that's quite interesting because uh, up to this point in time, uh, chariots were used in ancient times primarily for carrying dignitaries. You know, like Pharaoh would come out in his chariot, uh, as Joseph will come out in Pharaoh's chariot and is paraded through the land as, as, a, as a great one. Uh, but other than that, chariots weren't really used 
uh, you know, they were used much like the Queen's state carriage, you know, just came out once in a while and, and the sovereign went through the land and received the applause and, uh, of the people. But what the Assyrians realized was, hang on a minute, chariots could be used in battle. And so they, they, they were the first to employ chariots in battle. And they became very effective. And, and basically, you know, you're looking at infantry divisions that are suddenly faced with a tank division that they hadn't seen before. They'd never fought this kind of warfare before. And so the horses, this cavalry of, of horsemen and of chariots was a new thing in ancient warfare. And, and it's quite interesting in that respect. You know, the locusts uh, are described there in verse 4 as having the appearance of horses and as horsemen, so shall they run. And, uh, you know, the word for locust in Italian is cavalete, which quite literally means little horse. Uh, because they have a, a, a locust head is very similar in profile to a horse's head. Uh, they have a very similar shape. Uh, even the Germans, and, and their word for a locust is hupaferde, meaning hay horse. For the same reason, they see the horse, the locust as a little horse-like uh, figure. So God uses these little creatures to say, look, these, these little creatures with their little horse-shaped heads are a picture of an army that's coming 200 or so years from now who will come on horses. They will come in on you on chariots. Luke verse 5, like the noise of the chariots on the tops of mountains shall they leap. Remember last week when, we, when, we, when I showed you the video uh, of the uh, locust infestation in Kenya? And somebody actually commented in the foyer on the way out about the noise of the insects. Uh, you know, there was a certain kind of uh, rumble uh, with them as they were moving along. And, and again, Joel plays on that. He says, you know, that noise that you heard of these insects, you know, piling up on top of each other and making almost the sound of a chariot wheel, it's pictorial of these people who are yet in the future, who have not designed their warfare as yet, but they're coming, and they're coming on horses, and they're coming on chariots. It's quite a remarkable uh, prophecy. And uh, so they, were, they were forewarned. Uh, of this of this coming uh, enemy that was heading their way. Now, as before, repentance and prayer is their only hope. Look at verse 12. Therefore also now saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart, and uh, with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. Who knoweth if he will return and repent and leave a blessing behind him, even a meat offering and a drink offering unto the Lord your God. Look at those beautiful descriptive terms of God in verse 13. He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, of great kindness, one who repents him of the evil. You know, oftentimes enemies of the cross want to make a distinction between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, as if somehow they're different characters, as if the God of the Old Testament is cruel, cold, vindictive, hard, whereas the God of the New Testament is loving and kind and gracious and wouldn't hurt a fly. But actually, uh, they're completely wrong about the God of the Old Testament, just as they are of the God of the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New. He is gracious. He is merciful. 
He is slow to anger. He is of magnanimous kindness. Uh, he is one who will repent himself of the evil. In other words, his desire was not to judge these people. God did not want to bring the Assyrians into the land, even though that's what was going to happen. Any more than he had wanted to bring the locusts into the land. But that was necessary to bring these people to their knees. And the cry went out for repentance. They were called to alarm. Look, the judgment of God is coming. You need to repent. But if you repent... God will be gracious and merciful. God will be kind. God will turn away the judgment and he'll restore the land back onto you. Notice how he says that he will leave behind a blessing, even a meat offering and a drink offering. What's that tell you? It tells you that the devastation created by the locusts would be reversed and that the, uh, the animals and the plants that would be provided previously for the offerings could now be used again in the worship of the Lord. So there was a call, uh, a call of alarm. And then in chapter 2, in verse 15 to 17, there's a call to assembly. Let's look at verses 15 through 17. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly. Gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and those that suck the breast. Let the bridegroom go forth of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep between the porch and the altar. And let them say, Spare thy people, O Lord, and give not thine inheritance to reproach that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore should they say among the people, Where is their God? So what you have now is a national call to prayer and to worship. In chapter 1, we read how the sacrifices and worship of God had ceased owing to the famine that hit the land. But what does the scripture teach us? And here's the lesson that God wants them to learn. Let's go back to our previous prophecy, Hosea chapter 6, and let's look at verse 6 and remind ourselves of the words of Hosea with respect to God's expectations of his people. Hosea chapter 6 and verse 6. What does the prophet say? And what does the Lord say through the prophet? For I desired mercy and not sacrifice. And the knowledge of God, that's experiential personal knowledge of God, more than burnt offerings. You see, what God wants from the people in Joel's day is integrity, is uh, genuineness. He wants them to be sincere. He wants them to be Real, he says in verse 12, uh, turn ye even to me with all your heart. Verse 13, rend your heart, not your garments. He wants to get to the heart of their religion. You see, they're going through the motions. They're just doing what is expected of them under the law. But they're not doing it with a genuine heart, with a sincere heart. They're mechanically and dutifully performing the sacrifices. And friends, that's as much a danger for us as it is for the, as it was for them. You see, sometimes we can do things in our churches because that's the form. We just do it that way because, hey, that's the way everybody does it. And, you know, that's what we've always done. And, uh, you know, sometimes we, we, we have to think about this and maybe consider, you know, looking at that form and saying, well, is that really biblical or is that just traditional? You know, is that in the Bible or is that just something that we're 
we're coming up with as a consequence of our traditions or because other churches do similarly. Uh, you know, are we doing the thing because the Bible tells us to do it? Are we doing the thing because, well, it's just the done thing? And they were, they were going through their sacrifices because it was just the done thing. But here's the thing, friends. Uh, form and formalism often chokes the life out of a church. And we need to get away from that, from formalism, and, and, and step aside from it because it chokes the spiritual life of the church. So the people are called to the temple and they're called to pray. And notice this call goes out to all the people. Look in verse 16. Gather the people, all the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders, the older people. Gather the children and even the babies, those that suck the breasts. And even the bride and bridegroom were not excused from this national day of prayer. Let the the bridegroom go forth of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. The newlyweds were expected uh, to come and they were not exempted from this call. You know, normally those who were just married, this is good news for Phil and and Carrie, those who were just married were exempted under the law from from war and certain duties. Um, Deuteronomy 24.5 says this, when a man hath taken a new wife, he shall not go out to war. Neither shall he be charged with any business, but he shall be free at home one year and shall cheer up his wife which he hath taken. That's what you've got to do for the next year is cheer up, Carrie, because she'll be miserable after you marry her. No, I'm only kidding. <laughs> but, but you get the picture. You know, he's, he's to try and build a happy home. He's to spend a year making his wife happy. You know, uh, you know he, spent, he spent a year already building her a home to come to. And then when she comes into that home, she's a typical woman. She won't like the paint. She won't like the doors here. She'll want this moved, the window in there. She'll want this changed and that changed. So he spends the next year cheering up his wife. <laughs> now, I remember a young man came to me one time. He, he got married and he started missing church. And I said to him, you know, I've noticed you're not at church as often as you were. He says, oh, pastor, he says, you know, I, I'm a newlywed. The Old Testament says I'm exempt from these things for a year. He was as serious as a heart attack. I couldn't believe him. I looked at him and I thought, is your head cut? Is there air getting in? You know, it's funny how people are, are happy to be free from the law uh, when it suits them, but quite willing to surrender to the law when it's to their advantage. And incidentally, that young man, he's married longer than a year now, well over well, many years, and his, his faithfulness to church never recovered. You know, he used that as an excuse uh, I've married a wife, and, and, he, and, and before he married this woman, he was out at every single meeting. After he married this woman, once a week. And sometimes not even once a week. And he's never recovered. But uh, here the bridegroom and the bride, the newlyweds, are called upon to join the assembly in prayer and to come to the temple uh, to pray. And again, the priests are called upon to mourn and to weep in this national feast, to be moved by and sorry for the sins of the nation and for the damage that those sins had brought. Uh, and they're told that you know, if that doesn't happen, there's greater devastation coming to the land. Now, again, you know, you notice their prayer. They're, they're to pray, spare thy people, O Lord, verse 17. And, and uh, spare thy people, O Lord, and give not thine heritage to reproach that the heathen should rule over them. There, wherefore should they say among the people, where is their God? Because God is presently silent 
And this is man's day. And man is presently vocal in his challenge to God. He reads the silence of God as, and the inactivity of God as, an, as, a, as a proof that God does not exist. Friends, when God is silent, men ought to be very careful indeed. Because all they're doing is storing up for themselves wrath for the day of wrath. And there's coming this day when God will break that silence. He's not always going to be silent. Man's day will be done someday. And the Lord's day, the day of the Lord, shall soon come. Now, let's close this out with the last few verses, verse 18 to 27. And I want you to see that there was a calm assurance, okay? A calm assurance. Okay, verse 18 says this. Then will the Lord be jealous for his land and pity his people. Yea, the Lord will answer and say unto his people, Behold, I will send you corn and wine and oil, and you shall be satisfied therewith. And I will no more make you a reproach among the heathen. But I will remove far off from you the northern army and will drive him into a land barren and desolate with his face toward the east sea and his hinder part toward the utmost sea. And his stink shall come up and his ill savour shall come up because he hath done great things. Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice for the Lord will do great things. Be not afraid, ye beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness do spring for the tree beareth her fruit, and the fig tree and the vine do yield uh, their strength. Be glad then, ye children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. For he hath given you the former rain moderately, and he will cause to come down for you in the rain, the former rain, and the latter rain, in the first month. And the floors shall be full of wheat, and the fats shall overflow with wine and oil. And I will restore to you the years that the locust hath eaten, the canker worm, and the caterpillar. And the palmer worm, my great army, which I sent among you. And you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God that have dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never be ashamed. And you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. And that I am the Lord your God. And none else. And my people shall never be ashamed. Okay? So, uh, let me just catch up my things here. I've got... Uh, Lost them a little slides. Okay, here we go. All right. So verse 18 then. Then, shall the, then will the Lord be jealous for his land and pity his people. You know, here's, here's the thing about jealousy. You can only be jealous of that which you possess. Of that which you already possess. Uh, you know, here's the thing. Uh, you know, a young man has a girlfriend. His, his girlfriend is approached by another young man, equally handsome, just as charismatic. He starts chatting to her. He's chatting her up a little bit. How does the young man feel? He feels jealous. Why does he feel jealous? He feels jealous because that's his girlfriend. And uh, they have an agreement that they're going out together. And he's unhappy that this other fellow is trying to muscle in uh, on, his, on his girlfriend. The same thing would be true of a husband and wife. You know, if a, if a, if a, if a lady is flirting with a husband... Well, the wife will get instantly jealous and she'll be upset at the flirtation, and rightly so. Uh, and she will then uh, likely rebuke her husband 
uh, or maybe speak to the lady concerned. So you can only be jealous of something or someone that you already possess. And here's the thing the Lord possesses. He possesses the land. Remember last week he talked about my vine, my fig tree. Now he's talking about his land. Then will the Lord be jealous for his land. This land belongs to the Lord. It is his possession. It doesn't belong to the Assyrians. The Assyrians have no business laying claim to it beyond the bounds of God's will in chastising his people. So God's promise is to deal with the northern army in uh, verse 20 and to restore the land. Now the Assyrian army came into Israel uh, at the, at, uh, under the reign of the last king of Israel, King Hosea, and simultaneously under the reign of the king Hezekiah of Judah. And uh, they took the northern part of the land, the northern kingdom, without any difficulty. They came in, and destroyed the land, took Hosea captive, and then they proceeded further south into the land of Judah and began to ransack the towns and villages of Judah until they uh, set their sights on its capital, upon Jerusalem. And they set up an army beside the walls of Jerusalem. Now you've got to imagine the scene if you're a citizen of Jerusalem. And you're looking out over the walls of your city. And there is a, a, an absolute sea of soldiers out in front of you. Hundreds of thousands of soldiers are right outside your city. And you know their reputation. And you know that they're a devastating army. And not only that, you know they're a very cruel army. Uh, these, this Assyrian army was known for doing terrible things. They would oftentimes spike their enemies. They'd put them on a spike and put their bodies up for everybody to see. Sometimes they actually would uh, skin people alive. I mean, that's the kind of army they were. So you can imagine the terror that that would have uh, set in the hearts of the people as they looked out and saw this. And you can read about all of this in Second Kings chapter 18 and 19, Second Chronicles chapter 32, and also in Isaiah's prophecy. Let's look in Isaiah for a moment and chapter 36. And he kind of gives a summation of what took place. Really, uh, Kings, First Kings is the passage to really read if you want a more comprehensive uh, detail of what took place here. But we're going to just, for the sake of time, look at Isaiah's account of it in Isaiah chapter uh, 36. And we're going to read the entirety of this chapter and then a little portion of chapter uh, 37. It says, Now it came to pass in the 14th year of King Hezekiah that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the defense cities of Judah and took them. And the king of Assyria sent Rabshakeh. Now, Rabshakeh isn't a name. It isn't a personal name. It's a position, a title. It means field commander. The king of Assyria sent his field commander from Lachish, another village of Judah, to Jerusalem unto King Hezekiah with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of the fuller's field. Now, knowing that this army was coming, King Hezekiah ordered that the wells and the cisterns of Judah be stopped up, that uh, that the Assyrian army would have no access to water. Uh, But by standing at this conduit, uh, Rabshakeh is letting them know they know the lay of the land. They know where the water is. And then came forth unto him Eliakim, Hilkiah's son, which was over the house, and Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, Asaph's son, the recorder. And Rabshakeh said unto them, Say ye now to Hezekiah, Thus saith the great king, the king of Assyria, What confidence is this wherein thou trustest? So right there you can see that, uh, that uh, the king Sennacherib has made a, a terrible mistake. He refers to himself as the great king. Uh, Psalm 95.3 tells us the Lord is the great king. So he's taking a title of God. 
And he says, I say, sayest thou that they are, but they are free in words. I have counsel and strength for war. Now in whom dost thou trust that thou rebellest against me? Lo, thy trust is in the staff of this broken reed. On Egypt, whereon of a man lean, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh king of Egypt to all that trust in him. Hezekiah had been tempted to put his trust in Egypt. But if thou say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah hath taken away and saith to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? So Hezekiah, when he becomes king, he cleanses the land of idolatry. He destroys the high places. He reestablishes worship in the, in the temple at the heart of Jerusalem. And the Assyrians read this as, as, a, as an affront to God because they thought that by destroying all of these high places, which were uh, idolatrous, but nevertheless in the minds of the people, were seen as uh, places where God himself could be worshipped. Uh, the Assyrians said, well, you've dismantled your own religion. You've already damaged the houses of your God, and now you think this God's going to save you. But of course, far from weakening his position by doing that, Hezekiah had strengthened his position uh, by doing that. Verse 8 Now therefore give pledges, I pray thee, to my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give thee two thousand horses, if thou be able on thy part to set riders upon them. Notice how he's mocking them, because they have no cavalry. He says, I'll tell you what we'll do, we'll give you two thousand horses, if you can find riders to ride on them. He's mocking them. And he says, how then wilt thou turn away the face of one captain of the least of my master's servants and put thy trust on Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? He says, they don't have the, the chariots nor the skill to deal with it. Am I now come up without the Lord against this land to destroy it? The Lord said unto me, go up against this land and destroy it. By the way, God did not say that to Sennacherib. He told him to do that with respect to Israel, but not to Judah. And then said Eliakim and Shebna and Joah unto Rabshakeh, Speak, I pray thee, unto thy servants in the Syrian language, for we understand it. Speak, to us, speak not to us in the Jewish language, in Hebrew, in the ears of the people that are on the wall. But Rabshakeh said, Hath my master sent me to thy master and to, to thee to speak these words? Hath he not sent me to the men that sit upon the wall, that they may eat their own dung and drink their own piss with you? Then Rabshakeh stood and cried with a loud voice in the Jewish language and said, Hear ye the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus saith the king, Let not Hezekiah deceive you, for he shall not be able to deliver you. Neither let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city shall not be delivered into the hand uh, this city shall not be delivered into the hand of the king of Assyria. Hearken not to Hezekiah. For thus saith the king of Assyria, Make an agreement with me by a present, and come out to me, and eat ye every one of his vine and every one of his fig tree, and drink ye every one of the waters of his own cistern, until I come and take you to a land like your own land, a land of corn and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. So he basically says to them, Listen, why don't you just surrender? Come on out, we'll let you enjoy your, your farmland. We'll let you have access to the water cisterns. And when the time comes, we'll gather you up. We'll take you off to our land. It's just like your land. You'll have a great time. You know, there's no point in anybody getting hurt here. You can see it, can't you? And then he says, verse 18, Beware lest Hezekiah persuade you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. 
Hath any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Now remember the question is, where is your God? You know, and that's what he's saying to them. Well, you know, where is your God? How is your God any better than their gods? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arphad? Where are the gods of Sepharphim? And have they delivered Samaria, the northern kingdom, out of my hand? Who are they among all the gods of these lands that have delivered their land out of my hand? That the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. But they held their peace and answered him not a word. For the king's commandment was saying, answer him not. Then came Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, that was over the household. And Shebna, the scribe, and Joel, the son of Asaph, the recorder, to Hezekiah with their clothes rent and told him the words of Rabshakeh. So when they rent their clothes, that's a sign of distress. They basically said, we're going to be destroyed. We're beaten here. Now, let's go into chapter 37, see what happens. And it came to pass when King Hezekiah heard it, that he rent his clothes and he covered himself with sackcloth and he went into the house of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim who was over the household and Shabna the scribe and the elders of the priests covered with sackcloth Unto Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos. You know what I think? I think there's two great things that he did here. First of all, he went to the house of the Lord. When you're in distress, when you're in trouble, there's no better place for you than the house of the Lord to get the church. And then the second great thing he did was he sent a message unto Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos. In other words, he spoke to his pastor. And sometimes, you know, when I, I, some people say to me, other preachers say to me, well, how's things going at points past? And I always give the same answer. I say, it's going great, as far as I know, but then I'm the pastor. I'm usually the last to know. <laughs> and, and that's the truth of it. Very often we hide things from the pastor. And we don't want the pastor to know we're in trouble. And then when we're really in trouble, then the pastor hears. And maybe we could have saved ourselves some of the heartache if we'd have spoke with the pastor in the first place. He might have helped us out of the situation. But nevertheless, Hezekiah didn't make that mistake. He was in trouble. He went to the house of God. He spoke with his pastor. He spoke with Isaiah. And they said unto him, said unto Isaiah, Thus saith Hezekiah, This day is a day of trouble, and of rebuke, and of blasphemy. And the children are come to the birth, and there's not strength to bring forth. It may be the Lord thy God will hear the words of Rabshakeh, whom the king of Assyria, his master, hath sent to reproach the living God, and reprove the words which the Lord thy God hath heard. Wherefore, lift up thy prayer for the remnant that is left. So the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah. And Isaiah said unto them, Thus shall you say unto your master, Thus saith the Lord, Be not afraid of the words that thou hast heard, wherewith the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. You see that phrase, the servants of the king? It quite literally means the boys, the king's boys. And you see, the Lord is now the Lord is now belittling the Assyrian army. You know, they're all standing out there with their armor armor on. They're all trained soldiers. They're uh, they're masters at warfare. And the Lord says, "Don't be afraid. You don't be afraid of the of the Assyrian boys. They're just little boys before me." Let's carry on. He says, "Behold, verse seven, I have sent a blast, literally a wind, my spirit upon him." And he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land. That's the king of Assyria. And I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. I will leave that there for the moment. But let's go down to verse 36 and see what happens. It says, Then the angel of the Lord went forth and smote in the camp of the Assyrians a hundred 
and fourscore and five thousand, a hundred and eighty-five thousand. And when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. So Sennacherib, king of Syria, departed. He departed in part because uh, the Ethiopians had, had attacked his own country. And he went and returned and dwelt at Nineveh. And it came to pass as he was worshipping in the house of Nisroch, his god, that Adramalach and Sharezer, his sons, smote him with the sword. And they escaped into the land of Armenia. And Ezrahaddon, his son, reigned in his stead. In other words, it all came to pass exactly as God said it would. So, verse 21 then of Joel's prophecy, chapter 2, God said he would do great things with the enemies of his people. That's exactly what happened. Verse 20 says that he would cause their stink to come up and the ill savor to come come up. You think about this. If 185,000 soldiers have dropped dead at the walls of Jerusalem. I mean, overnight, suddenly they're dead. You get up next morning, there's corpses everywhere. And there's, a, there's an attack taking place on the Assyrian base back at Nineveh. And the Assyrian army is called back home to deal with that. There's no time for burying 185,000 soldiers. So what do you think they did with them? They just leave them there to rot. Can you imagine the smell? It would have been Horrific. The smell of these soldiers. But that's what God said he would do for them. He says, I'm going to cause their bodies to stink. And here's the interesting thing. Locusts, when locust plagues die out, guess what happens? There's a stink. The locust begins to rot and there's a terrible smell that comes up off the earth. So again, there's this picture that is being played out from chapter 1 into chapter 2. So uh, he tells them that this is what's going to happen. And then he tells them that the land that now lies dry and desolate following the locust place and prophetically this Assyrian invasion will be restored in verses 22 down to verse 25. Now, in verse 28 uh, of this prophecy, the prophecy pushes beyond uh, Joel's day, beyond even the time of the Assyrian invasion uh, and goes to the time of the end, to the very uh, last battle uh, against Israel. But there's a very interesting statement made uh, in verse 23, where he talks about how the Lord would give them rain moderately and cause the rain to come down, uh, the former rain and the latter rain in the first month. He talks about how he would restore the, uh, the, the fruit trees, the fig tree, the fine tree, and how he would restore that which the locust hath eaten. And, uh, you know, they're looking at a land that's completely destroyed, scorched earth, Palestine, desolate, nothing there. The bark is stripped bare off the trees. The fruit is all eaten. The greenery is all gone. There's famine coming upon the land. It looks like it's been torched. And God says, listen, I'm going to restore it all to you. And what's interesting is, in terms of as we approach the ultimate day of the Lord, is that you know, we see this, how this unfolds toward the latter days. Because what happened, you know, when, the, when uh, Hadrian comes along, the emperor Hadrian comes along and he effectively scatters the Jews to the four corners of the earth. Uh, the land of Israel becomes a desolate land, a land that was once a land that was fertile and was producing uh, fruit, figs, and, uh, and vine, and so on. It suddenly becomes a desolate land. And, and in 1867, that was how uh, Mark Twain uh, found the land, very famously in his uh, book, Innocence Abroad. He wrote this of the land of Israel. He says, The further we went, the hotter the sun got. The more rocky and bare, repulsive and dreary the landscape became. 
There was hardly a tree or a shrub anywhere. Even the olive and the cactus, those fast friends of a worthless soil, had almost deserted the country. So basically after the crucifixion of Christ, that's how the land was left. The land was left desolate. It was repulsive. It was dreary. But what happens? 1948, Israel is reestablished as a nation. What happens? The former and the latter rains begin to fall. You see, during the 2,000 years between the time that Jesus was crucified and buried and risen again and the rejection of the Jews, up until 1948, this land was a desert place. There was no rainfall or very little rainfall. But once the Jewish people began to return to the land, God returned the rains to the land. And now the land is fertile. In fact, I just checked up on this today and I discovered that the nation of Israel is the eighth largest exporter of tropical fruit in the world. A third of a billion dollars worth of fruit they sell every year. A land that was described as rocky and bare, repulsive and dreary is now the eighth most important exporter and seller of fruit in the world. Isn't that remarkable? That's the blessing of God. And that's what God said he would do for this land. Nevertheless, you know, verses 26, 27, despite the judgments that they would experience and had experienced, they are to be comforted in God's goodwill uh, toward them. You know, from, from being uh, an idolatrous nation to the north and a nation uh, sold and called formalism in the south, they had recognized the hand of the Lord upon them and they would praise him. Look in verse 26. And you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God. And they shall have experiential knowledge of God. Verse 27. And you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, that I am the Lord your God and none else and my people shall never be ashamed. Now, notice that last line. My people, the Jewish people, shall, shall never. What does the word never mean? What's never mean? <laughs> People always say that never means never. Never uh, means not ever. Okay? It's an it's a, it's a abbreviation or a shortened version of, of not ever. So it's not ever, is never. So God says, my people shall not ever be ashamed. They're not ever going to be let down. Why? Because God has made promises to them. And those promises have eternal ramifications. So there are those who want to put Israel to shame. Even in the church, there are people who want to put Israel to shame, who want Israel to be punished uh, for their treatment of the Lord Jesus Christ when he came. But God's promise is that he would never put his people to shame, that, it, that they were never going to end up in that position. So God is honor-bound uh, to, uh, to indeed restore the land and to allow these people back into the land and to see that the land uh, indeed is returned back to that position, which we read off in the early part, portion, portion of this scripture as the Garden of Eden, where it becomes again a fertile territory. And so you come now to verse 28. And what happens is the uh, prophet now takes a step forward. He says, we've, we've dealt with the locust plague. We've moved a little bit forward with an imminent day of the Lord, with the Assyrian invasion. Now we're going to take a, a big leap and we're going to the very end of time. And we're going to look at the battle of Armageddon and Israel in the last days. 
And that's where we'll pick up, Lord willing, next week in verse 28. All right, we'll leave it there for this evening. But let's just remind ourselves that, you know, whatever happens in this world, God is in control. You know, even when catastrophic things happen, God is in control. And that's so important to hold on to. And remember that in the midst of even all the horrors that we see unfolding on our television screens and on our computer screens, God remains gracious and merciful, slow to anger and full of kindness. All right, we'll leave it there for this evening.